What is up everyone and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast, we speak to Mike Hurwitz, who is the architect at Blue Code. Mike's had an amazing career spanning companies like Tumblr and Shuttershop. In this episode, we get into Mike's journey in tech and get into some really cool details on how Mike and his team are building and designing solutions for retail brands that help them make critical decisions for their consumers. So pump up that volume and get ready for an intriguing conversation with Mike Hurwitz. And also, Happy New Year to all of you. All right, Mike. So we finally made it to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm all right, man. It's like uh, I love doing these on a Friday because you've gone through like a successful week and then you talk to somebody exciting and that kind of motivates you for the next week. So I'm really looking forward to talk, talking to you, actually. I've been looking forward to this now. I mean, we were trying to do it in December and I'm so glad we get to do it now. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, do you know, this is uh, actually the first recording that I'm doing this year. So you are my first guest for oh, 2024. I'm <laughs> yeah. Well, let's kick it off right. I know. So the way the way I joke about this is if I if we get this one right, the rest of the year will be perfect. You know, so you have a lot of pressure going on to be an awesome guest. <laughs> I'll do what I can. <laughs> awesome. Well, for everybody listening in, well, welcome to, uh, you know, 2024, the first episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast. Today, I have with me Mike Hurwitz, who is uh, an architect working at Bluecore and has done some interesting work at companies like Tumblr and Shutterstock. Now, before I jump into talking about all the amazing things, Mike, that Mike, you have done in your career, Let's start with a very simple question as to why did you decide to jump into the world of tech and do what you do today? My father was one of the few people that he knew who ever had done any software development at all. Uh, While he was at the University of Maryland in like 1964, I want to say, he was doing some programming. And uh, so when he went out into the business world with my grandfather, he was very big into how do we automate everything? How do we automate our business? So he got, you know, he, he was bringing computers into his office in like 1978 or nine. So when I was a little kid, I went to his office and got to like write in basic on his IBM machines that were littering the office. Uh, and then when I was a kid, you know, we had all of the common like early 80s, late 70s computers, we had a Timex Sinclair and a TRS-80 and like all of those. And then finally got a PC and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so I was writing in basic and a bunch of time went by and I didn't think that this was a career that I wanted to do. When I was in college, uh, frankly, I was too much of a coward to apply to the computer science school. Uh, so I don't have a computer science degree. But when I got out of school, I went to a job fair and I thought I was going to get an IT job because I'd been building computers for years, you know, just because it was something to do uh, and it was fun. And everybody I talked to in line was looking for that kind of a job. So I threw my resume into a software development job because I was like, okay, I can kind of do this and I got to do something. And I was maybe in my second week of work. I was like, oh, wait, I really love this. I, it, this was in the late 90s, so it was very easy to get a job. It was a lot harder to get a good job. So I had a bad job. And it was, I was working in, in, going back to my roots, working in Visual Basic. 
And I was standing one day by a printer waiting for something to come out. And there was a, I think uh, the second volume of the art of computer programming was right by my head. And while I'm waiting for my printout, I just start flipping through it. Like, okay, this is kind of awesome. And I found the rest of the volumes littered around the office. One was holding up a desk. One was in a, I, I think it was like turned around in a bookshelf and I found them all. And I was like, okay, this is great. And that's when I realized this isn't just something I want to do as a job. This is actually something I love doing and worked really hard to get better at it. It takes a, a particular kind of idiot to not figure that out until they've already graduated college. Uh, but I am that idiot. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, one of the things that, that fascinates me about everybody's story is uh, like, especially, especially origins, right? Like if you, if you, uh, if you've been a fan of comic books, right. And I'm a huge comic book person, you know, we all want to know how a superhero what was the beginning? You know what, <laughs> you know, what made him? Uh, and, and it's 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 funny uh, when we think about it. Like when we people who work in tech, especially people who are working on solving complex problems, building these amazing applications that can scale, that solve the problem for millions of people in the world. What you are doing is a superhuman effort that we don't really realize. So I always have this uh, interest in knowing how somebody got the passion that they got, you know? So it's really interesting that you brought it up. The other funny thing is uh, that I really enjoyed hearing from you right now was the concept of looking at a book and reading a book to learn programming. Because... (laughs) Because if to, I mean, look at what's happening nowadays, you know, uh, you know, with, with all the access to the internet, obviously, and now we have, you know, AI that help, helps people code and learn coding, uh, such a different world right now. But, it, but it's been a fascinating, um, you know, journey. Uh, so when you started off your career, what kind of, so Visual Basic, what was the next programming language you jumped into from there? So I found myself, uh, I was at a consulting shop and we got contracted to a company uh, that was trying to do a project in this new language that wasn't even out of beta yet called C-sharp. So I spent about the next 10 years, I mean, I did a bunch of different stuff. I did a little bit of C++. I did like enough Java to get by, but the next roughly 10 years. So the first three years was mostly Visual Basic, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but mostly Visual Basic. The next 10 years was mostly C-sharp. Um, and I gotta say, I, I really loved C-sharp. I still think it's a great language. I haven't worked in it in a long time, uh, but I learned a ton about how to be better at this game from C-sharp. Oh yeah. I think C-sharp programmers have like, uh, like there's a, they have learned really great concepts and that allows them to abstract with other languages and deliver like really good quality code. The thing about C-sharp that I that I thought was really great was because it wasn't the first language like that, they were able to learn a lot of lessons and they were very structured about how they built everything. So if you read the .NET framework design guidelines, it's not the only way to do something, but they were able to explain, this is why we chose to do it this way. This was the trade-off we made. And in some places, actually, they even say, and we regret it because of X, Y, and Z. Um, there was also, uh, when the, the parallel framework came out, uh, the guy who founded Pulumi wrote a, wrote a book called Concurrent Programming on Windows. And 
again, fit really well into that ecosystem. And so from C Sharp, I was able to access all of this uh, sort of amazing low-level stuff that otherwise I wouldn't have really understood what it was doing and why. So when I, when I stopped working in C Sharp, all of those concepts still applied. And I, I'll say I developed a taste because when I've worked in languages that were more evolutionary in, in how they came up, um, I'll take PHP as an example of that. I've always been really frustrated. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm the only one to say I was frustrated working in PHP, although I know a lot of people who love it. Um, but when you compare that to, say, uh, the work that I've done in Scala or Go, which, again, are languages that were deeply, deeply thought out, it really shows. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity when I get the chance to work in languages like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You brought up a language, Scala. I was getting into Scala about eight years ago, especially when... That's about the right time. (laughs) Yeah, like, especially when we were doing some stuff with Spark and uh, our programming with, like, some data science-y stuff. Uh, But... uh, I have I haven't I got out of it very quickly because I chose to go the Python route and stayed on Python. Um, do you still code with Scala or do people use it? I haven't written Scala in a couple of years, in part because I just haven't been in an environment that had a lot of JVM in it. When I was a Tumblr, though, that's pretty much all I did. I found Scala to be a little bit harder to learn than maybe some of the other languages that I that I've worked with. It kind of bit my brain in some ways, and there were definitely times when I was like, I know this works, and I'm not really sure why, but we're just going to roll with that. But I happened to be working with some really, really good Scala developers, and uh, getting to see what you could do uh, largely immutable and highly concurrent and really fast, uh, it was really eye-opening for me. It was a different mechanism to get to concurrency than what I'd used before. And I liked it. I have to I have to say, I don't love Scala as a language, but that's mostly because I don't like how not great at it I am. But I loved what I could do with it. And some of my friends at Tumblr built amazing frameworks for us to work with. Yeah, it's it's amazing, you know. Uh, I I wanted to ask you. I, I know we went this programming route uh, direction with the with some of the questions, but uh, do, what's your point of view on Go right now as a language, and do you do you dabble with it? I do a lot more than dabble. So after Tumblr, I went to Shutterstock, and at Shutterstock, I learned Go, and it's just because the system I happen to be working with happened to be written in Go. And as coming from a Scala environment, I was like, oh no, where's all the structure? Where are my algebraic data types? Where's, insert whatever reason people hate Go. Uh, I've been using Go now for quite a while. And I'll say that it is my most comfortable language at this point. I'm a fan. I, I think that Go, first of all, I think it's very well structured where, again, people really thought hard about what this should be and then built it rather than they built most of it and then we'll figure out the rest later. The other thing I'll say about Go is the compatibility guarantee in an environment where you've got code that's going to live for a while is really great. It is amazing to say, okay, I'm going to upgrade my version of Go. I'm going to run my CI suite. And it's probably going to be just fine. Uh, It's really wonderful. I I love that. 
there are definitely times where I miss the powerful type system that you had in languages like Scala. But I don't know. I, th- I think that uh, uh, people get a lot more religious about Go than maybe it deserves. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I've been noticing too. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, CockroachDB was uh, com- is completely rewritten Postgres, um, you know, stuff in Go. Like we wrote the entire database in Go. And um, I've been, since I joined the company, been dabbling with Go on the side. And I was, I had my own apprehensions of about going and trying something uh, because there is, you either love it or you don't love it. Like that's what, and you kind of, uh, you can't be, there's no middle ground here. But I'm starting to enjoy it uh, a lot, you know. Um, I don't use it often, but as whenever I get to use it, I feel like it's it's it, it's pretty neat and does uh, some interesting thing. I was just going to say, one of the, th- the thing about Go is, uh, the way people are using the language has really changed. So when I first started writing Go, it was like, I don't care what you're doing. A channel must be the answer. There will be a channel in your program. I don't care what. And channels are great. Like there's a really strong academic history behind CSP and like what it's all about. And it's a great tool. It's not the only tool in the world. And once the uh, Go community kind of figured that out, that channels are a sometimes food, then I think go, working in Go got a lot better. Uh, and a lot of the the criticisms that people had about the inefficiencies of the language and bringing in concurrency controls when you didn't need them, a lot of that kind of fell away. There are some, still some things that I miss. I miss iterators. Iterators were nice, but you can fake it. Yeah. No, we should go back and give this feedback. Says, uh, Mike said, iterators need to come back, you know? <laughs> oh, don't worry. I am not the only one. There is an open issue. The Go team has commented on it many times. They don't need to hear from me. It's cool. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, but if, <laughs> if you're tuning in, like I, for everyone listening, for tuning in, let me just reiterate that Mike is a software architect not a software developer, but has great skills in programming languages from what he just said, said, right? So let's let's dive into a little bit more, Mike. Uh, and why don't you let the people know a little bit about your current role at BlueCore and, uh, you know, uh, what are you working on that's making, you know, that's changing the world, I would say, <laughs> for retailers around the world. Because, and also I would say expand on what BlueCore does as well, right? Because it's, it's sort of like a um, platform that you have developed uh, for retailers that many people not really know about so yeah so the way that people have thought about digital marketing and blue core is a digital marketing company let's start there uh blue core as a digital marketing company is a little bit different than the way people were maybe thinking about digital marketing a couple of years ago 10 years ago blue core actually started 10 years ago but what was popular at the time the way that people think about digital marketing is I am going to learn absolutely everything about you. And then once I know everything from what you had for breakfast to what your favorite shoes are to the color of your underwear, I'm going to know what music I should market to you, or I'm going to know what experience I should market to you. And as it turns out, people are a little bit more complicated than that and really kind of separate their lives. The way that I shop at one particular retailer may be very different from another retailer, even if they have overlapping product lines, just because I want something different from them. So BlueCore is uh, not the kind of platform that follows you around the internet. You know, it's if you go into a shoe store and you say, 
are looking at a pair of shoes and someone comes up to you and says, hey, can I get that for you in a size 10? That's not weird. That's working at a shoe store. When that person grabs a clipboard and follows you from the shoe store to the grocery store to your doctor's office, that's weird. And that's what we don't do. So we have uh, a first party data. So you go onto a site, you do a bunch of behaviors. We track those behaviors and those behaviors are used only by the site that you're on. So if you go to Nike and you look at shoes and then you go to Adidas, what you did at Nike is completely separate. So that's if that weren't the case, honestly, I probably wouldn't be comfortable working here. So now that we have all of this data and we can start drawing inferences about who you are and what you like and what your shopping patterns are, we're focused on digital marketing, which means we've got a site product, but our, our top line product is really email. When do you look at email? That's something that's important. How likely are you to look at two emails in a day? That's also pretty important. What is, for you, the most important kind of communication to receive? Some people really respond to things like an abandoned cart, while somebody else might respond to a discount. Somebody else who doesn't care about discounts but only wants the new stuff, well, we should know that too, and we do. So now that we have all of that information and store it in a very large database, as you might imagine, we then schedule out communications and send them out to, to various recipients. One thing that makes this different from some of the other systems that I've worked in is in, a, in other things I've done, users were either completely unidentified, we don't know who they are, and we probably never will, or they're completely identified. They've logged into the system, or they have their own username, or the only thing that matters is a session. Well, BlueCore kind of straddles that line. It's very difficult to know the absolute truth when you don't know what a person is. So imagine that you come to a site, and let's say it's a site you've even shopped at before, but you're on a different device, or you cleared your cookies, or for whatever reason, we don't know who you are. You come in, you're doing a bunch of stuff, you look at some products, you add to your cart, remove from cart search, and then finally you decide you're going to buy, and at that point you're like, oh, if I want free shipping, I'd better log in. By the way, we have a thing to capture login, of course, because, you know, that's part of this business. But once you've now logged in, we have all of these events, which we've already committed to our database, but they're now associated with you. Oh, okay. So how are we going to do that when we're using a log structured database? We're using, you know, a columnar database um, for what it's worth. We're on GCP, so we're using BigQuery. Um, but you could say the same thing about Redshift or Snowflake or a million others, you know, Sybase IQ. Uh, we can't update. That's not really a thing. So how do those associations get made? Oh, but wait, it gets worse. Because if you're going to commit some behaviors, maybe you do some stuff. And maybe even you log in. And then you put your laptop down and you leave the room and... Let's say your, your significant other comes in and they pick up your laptop and they start doing a bunch of stuff. And they actually go to log in and say, oh, I'm, all, I'm logged in as David. Let me not do that. Let me go log in as me. And now all of a sudden we have a bunch of behaviors that need to be separated from you. So maintaining that is pretty complicated. Another thing that makes this complicated is the marketer's and the merchandisers are different people. They're different groups. So if we, for instance, get a feed of 
product information. That product information is very hard to keep up to date. So we actually use our observed values as people are going through the site. And that's the data that we use to determine what the state of truth is about product data. So we're taking raw behavioral data, which we still need. That's still very important. Who did what when? Still very important. But then figuring out what is the universe of shoppers? What is the universe of products? Those are actually derived off that event feed. One of the innovations that I, I think really kind of started BlueCore was recognizing that feeds of these things come too late. So maybe we should build a system that doesn't require that. And that's what we have. Got it. It's super interesting, you know, because what you kind of described to us is it's something that we as consumers of these retail applications or websites don't really think about. But then you, on the other hand, uh, are enabling these retailers and marketers and merchandise people to make the right decisions that eventually help me make the right decision quickly, right? Like, so in many ways, it's helping me uh, because of what you've done. What we try to, what we try to do, if, if things are going the way they're supposed to, the communications that you get from our partners via BlueCore should be the ones you want. They should be ones that you want to open and you want to action on. If we're sending you stuff you don't want, that's actually a really bad thing because you're much more likely to do things like either opt out from SMS or unsubscribe from email, and we don't want that. You're more likely to say, you know what? I don't care what they say anymore. So when that discount code that they really want to use to get you to go buy something can't get to you, well, then everybody loses. So we try to be, and and when our partners are using us in the best way, uh, we try to be very targeted in what we do. Now, there are definitely partners that we have that will happily, and especially during the holiday season, send you three emails a day. Happily do that. Fill your inbox. And that's a, it is a valid strategy. It is not the strategy that we optimize for. <laughs> I think that behavior also changes, right? Like, I mean, every year consumer behavior changes and the way we use our application changes. You know, I, I was just joking with my wife, like I have stopped using my email as much as I used to two years ago. But I do have all these emails coming to me that I hardly look at. So I'm really bad at following up on my emails. Uh, well, I, I mean... Maybe I shouldn't say this in a public forum, but I kind of am too. I, what I find myself doing with, with the way that I work with email and, and specifically talking about marketing email, because that's what BlueCore does, is usually I'm, I'm, I already have intent to go buy something. I'm like, huh, I wonder if I got a discount code or an offer in my email. If I did, let me go search for that and go work with it. And that's a totally reasonable thing to have happen. Uh, and that's, from our partner's perspective, that's a that's a win, right? I decided that I wanted to buy something. Where I chose to buy it from was in part driven by my email, even though all of that other time when I didn't have intent to buy something, I didn't really interact with them at all. That's fine, right? That's a win. So what I want to jump in and understand, so what goes into architecting a solution like this or a platform like this? Like uh, break, break down... Uh, how you kind of put everything together, the decisions you have to make around technology, uh, you know, cloud platform, all of those things, yeah. So 
like a lot of companies, Bluecore when we started, um, and and uh, to be clear, the company is ten years old. I've been there, not quite six. So a lot of what I'm about to say were decisions that were made before I got there. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants like everyone else. So when Bluecore started, we were targeting a much smaller set of the communications that we that you might want to send to a shopper. So to that end, uh, and we also didn't have any customers, right? So it made a lot of sense, first of all, to go to cloud. Amazon was off the table because a bunch of the uh, partners that we worked with compete with Amazon. And, and at the time, and again, this is 10 years ago, weren't comfortable with the separation between AWS and Amazon as a retailer. So that's off the table. GCP was the next logical choice. Now, I say that GCP didn't really exist. App Engine existed. So App Engine, which is Google's platform as a service, service is what Bluecore was originally built off. And we still have a bunch of stuff there. And, I, I, you know, we have outgrown App Engine for a bunch of our use cases. But, like, App Engine's fine. I, I have no complaints about a lot of what App Engine does. Um, it's not the direction we're going at our scale. But nine, ten years ago, it made a ton of sense. Okay, so we built it on App Engine. Messages come in. Everything's HTTP. They had a work queuing system uh, that they could use called Task Queues. We were able to, so we were able to take things in and schedule asynchronously, so that if we if we get overwhelmed with data, we can just process it later. And then everything went into a database. Uh, a couple of years later, that database got changed from uh, some row based store. I think it was MySQL, but I'm not really sure. Uh, it got changed into BigQuery. And BigQuery makes a ton of sense for these kinds of use cases because while you normally think about the about columnar databases in terms of uh, business intelligence type queries, think about what an audience segment is, right? I want to find all of the people who bought Red Shorts last year. They've been on the site in the last 90 days, but they haven't bought Red Shorts yet this year. You're not making an index for that. That's not going to happen. You're, you would have to be clairvoyant to think that, that, that you can do that. So, okay, we can't, have, we can't know what our indices are going to be ahead of time. We're going to have a ton of data. Most of it gets written once and never updated. Boy, that sounds like a columnar database. And so BigQuery has been a great choice for us. And I'm not, I, I don't want to say that BigQuery is the best columnar database out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had great experiences with it. And if my Google Cloud reps are listening right now, I love you guys. Uh, but the same, if we were talking about this in a more abstract sense, picking a columnar store, Redshift, Snowflake, Sybase IQ, Vertica, I mean, there are a million of them, right? Um, makes a ton of sense. And so BlueCore made that choice probably eight-ish years ago, and we've stuck with it. Um, and that, that, so that's one thing I'll say is that our source of truth for things like generating audience segments should be a database that has those attributes, right? Can hold a ton of data, can process a ton of data, doesn't require indexing. If we were building the same thing 10 years ago, we would be talking about Hadoop. Hadoop is great. Not don't want to, don't want to talk crap about Hadoop. It's a lot harder to run. 
Yeah, I was a huge fan of Hadoop when it came out because of the, what it could do, right? But then uh, I think I eventually end up in scenarios where I needed to do things much more quickly. And it would the processing time with Hadoop was way longer. Uh, and I think for people who don't want to manage Spark, I think uh, BigQuery came out as a pretty good solution or like Dataproc is another solution that folks use, right? Um, so you are using... Uh, BigQuery in that position. And so you get data feeds uh, from different sources. and or, or, Is it real-time or is it like batches? If I'm thinking batches in my mind. All of the above. So what happens for us is, uh, so I, I guess I'm allowed to say their name because they've used us in their, in, in their marketing materials. Sephora is a big retailer. They have a huge online presence, but they also have a huge brick-and-mortar presence. So... We get from them a bunch of things. We get feeds from them so that we can true up things like customer lists and catalogs and things like that. We also get big feeds of their offline purchases. And we've they've got identifiers on there that we can use to associate that, again, with a shopper. We also have uh, JavaScript installed on their site. So when you're browsing around Sephora, you are sending beacons off to us. So we're getting real-time events from their site, we are getting, I'll say, large batch bulk that we're that we're getting from them. Uh, that might be like, let's say, a daily feed. Um, I believe we even have some relatively higher frequency, you know, hourly stuff that we're getting from them. From that, we're generating, you know, all of our marketing uh, uh, communications that we're doing, emails and SMS and all that. But also, we are sending them feeds of their own data. So as an example, our segmentation is really pretty good. I mean, not to toot our own horn, but, you know, I guess I should. Uh, So for Sephora, they want to be able to say, I have all of this knowledge in BlueCore. How do I unlock that on other platforms? And, you know, you can think of all the ad networks that are out there that they want to participate in with their data from BlueCore. So we are not only getting these real-time feeds in, not only getting the bulk feeds in, not only sending out individual messages to recipients, but we're also sending out feeds that are being used to update things like ad networks, things like their internal databases. So there's there's a lot of data flying around. And... uh, the stuff that is bulk versus the stuff that is not bulk, it gets pretty complicated. So when we're talking about this from a design perspective, one of the things that has changed in the last couple of years at BlueCore, and uh, I am not the person who came up with this idea, but I am a huge supporter and have been a big part of, of getting it all implemented, was really changing from being request response focused and having request response stuff being very separated from bulk stuff to instead thinking about things in terms of streams. So I don't care if you send me a flat file or you send me a single event over uh, a beacon from the website, both of a row from that bulk file and the message that you sent are both going to end up in the event stream. And because we now have one event stream that we can use for everything, 
We don't have to worry about, oh, well, what happens if a piece of data goes around through the back door and just lands in the database? Well, that's not really a thing. I mean, for some stuff, it still is. But being able to uh, auto-scale up and down based on streams, uh, being able to use some of the, the message queuing features that are available to buffer information, replay if necessary, uh, has been a real boon. It also means that for us, when we're thinking about our services, I don't have to worry about massive spikes, as an example. So let's say that uh, Sephora, let's stick with Sephora, they decide that at 3 p.m. every day, they're going to email every single customer they have, all of their shoppers. And you know, I don't want to speak out of school, but let's just say it's got a couple of commas in it. Um, they decide that they want to do that. Well, at 2.59, everything was nice and quiet. The query runs, and you know it's a columnar database, so query takes a moment. But once the query is finished, we now have tens of millions of events that we now need to respond to. All of the downstream services that are involved in doing that need to suddenly scale up from basically zero to maximum speed? Well, no, that's crazy, right? That's impossible to manage unless you're going to have... And it can't happen in seconds, too. It, it can't happen in seconds because some of these services do have some internal state, although definitely we try to minimize internal state as much as we can. Um, you know, we're living in a Kubernetes world like everybody else these days. Uh, so you can't scale them up instantly. It's very expensive to build systems that can scale like that. And we don't actually need it. One of the things that has, has been really interesting for me about BlueCore, and I'll say this is very different from example Tumblr, we don't really care about latency most of the time. I mean, there are limits, you know. But if we're going to kick off an email campaign, and let's stick with my example of three o'clock, it is completely unreasonable and no one expects that all of those tens of millions of emails will have been sent by 10.02, right? That's not going to happen. And even if it does, who cares? People don't look at their email and respond to their email in that way. Even text messages, with the exception of some transactional stuff, you don't you care about latency by seconds or minutes. You don't care about milliseconds. We care about bandwidth. We care a lot about bandwidth. Well, this is where streaming systems work really well. Since I don't care about the extra latency hit that I'm going to take, there's already a system that somebody else is managing, which is great, that's going to buffer all of that information for me. And my service is going to sort of drink from that fire hose of stuff at the rate at which it can. So in a sense, you know, going back to the way to when we were talking about Scala earlier, uh, it feels a lot like the actor model that you got from tools like Akka in terms of how you compose your services. And Akka, by the way, is just an Erlang architecture that happened to have been written in Scala. Uh, that feels like a great way to respond to this kind of load. And it's worked out really well for us. We have, we still have some cases where there are services that get hit really hard, really fast uh, in unexpected ways. 
But slowly but surely, we've been working all of those out of the system because maintaining them is very difficult and expensive. And there's no value in it for us. It's not a problem we actually have to solve. Right. And what I liked about what you're saying here and what you, uh, the way you're designing things is that not many people come out and say this outright. Like pretty much everybody we know is designing stuff for scale on Kubernetes, right? But many, very rarely do you go back and question, do you really need it? You know, or not, because it's also expensive to put something together like this. So when you were saying this, what I appreciate in that in your comments is the fact that there is a very clear, the realistic perspective to what your business requires and designing and architecting solutions to cater to that. Right. Uh, And it's very good to know that latency is not important, but it's bandwidth because you have to shoot out these lots of emails through a certain in a certain amount of time. But if it gets delivered in after 30 seconds, is it okay? Maybe it's okay, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, for everybody listening, right? Bluecore has almost, uh, in my understanding, is about 400 plus brands who trust Bluecore to deliver uh, this experience, right? Like you have brands like Allo Yoga to Steve Madden, Lenovo to Express, Lulu and Georgia and Sephora. I mean, these are like really, really good, important brands. And um, and and I think so. Yeah, I mean, my <laughs> wife buys half the stuff from these shops, dude. So, <laughs> and my I house, hope she I hope she clicks on her emails. Yeah, except for Lenovo. Tell her I said to click on her emails. Yeah, yeah. Her. But <laughs> I think half the reason is why it's because of that. You know, those emails. But uh, right now. This is where you are with 400, uh, you know, trusted brands. And there's so many more brands to which you have to scale your business, your your platforms, your services, your applications to. So, um, so how are you catering that? So is the goal still to be within a single cloud environment like GCP? Have you started considering that, okay, how do you make decisions around, okay, what's going to happen uh, in the future, say, when you increase to, like, say, 4,000 brands? you start thinking about them now or you kind of deal with it as you get there, like a six-month kind of time frame? So, I mean, the, a couple of things about that. One is that the way that we think about scale, for the most part, it's a complicated question because we do keep data separate. So if you, for instance somehow, you know, knock me unconscious and grab my laptop and start trolling around our BigQuery instance, you're going to find that all of the data for all of those partners is all separate. And you would have to try really hard to join those things together because we we do nothing to make it easy for you because that's not a problem that we actually want to solve. Um, actually, it's a problem that in a lot of cases we are contractually forbidden from solving. So that's good. Uh, but when it comes to the size of, let's say, our BigQuery instance, or uh, we also use a lot of Bigtable. Um, I'm a big fan. Uh, it's also a really good paper if uh, uh, someone's looking for something to read. Fantastic paper, actually. 2007 or 8, I think. That's when it came out. Yeah. It goes well with the Hadoop paper. Got to rip my Yahoo roots. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> those tools, from what we've seen so far, I don't want to say confidently, oh, we could definitely go to 10x scale and these tools are going to be fine because I'm not certain that's true. But from everything we've seen so far, we don't really have a scale of data problem in those spaces. And when it comes to the more modern databases that I've used, and I think those are two good examples, the separation of storage and storage throughput from compute has made it so that that kind of scaling 
becomes possible. If you said to me, hey, Mike, go do that using just good old fashioned Postgres. Um, the first question I would be asking is, what grain should I be sharding on? And for us, it would obviously be, you know, on the partner level, but that would be the first question I'm asking. How do I shard? How do I group small shards together? How do I identify what the hot shards are going to be? Like all of these questions come up that on these other systems, I kind of don't have to care about. And it's nice not to have to care about them because they're hard. Um, I mean, we still have to deal with things like schema evolution. What does data recovery and disaster look like? Those are all big questions. But when it comes to scaling the systems, that has not been the problem. We've got other areas that, that are, but that those have not really been the problems yet. Um, when we think about multi-cloud, for what Bluecore does internally, it's not really necessary. And at this point, and you know, again, the, I don't want to. I don't want to pretend like I know the future. But at this point, for us, it would really be borrowing trouble. It's solving a problem we don't. We don't need to solve. There are. You know, that doesn't mean that we're not thinking about you know multi-region, multi-zone. You know, what? It's not that we're not thinking about disaster and what that looks like for us and our partners. But it does mean that I'll take and let's take for example BigQuery and Redshift on paper. And at a very high level, they kind of do the same thing. Kind of. Now, like all of these tools, you know, I mean, by the same, the same way you could say Postgres and MySQL, well, they do the same thing. Right until you actually want to do something with them. And then you realize, well, they solve the same problems, but they do them in very different ways. And they've got different edges that you might cut yourself on and you have to be careful about. Uh, as an example, when I was at Tumblr, we were a big MySQL shop. There were no joins. Zero joins in Tumblr. Blue core, lots of joins. <laughs> you know, it is a different, it's a different solution for a similar problem. Oh yeah. As soon as you said you you use BigQuery, in my mind, these guys use joins. They use all types of joins and nested queries and lots of data. You know, that's how you think. Yeah. It's because you can, right? Having to there is especially in a, in, a, in a sharded, low-latency environment, pushing all of that logic to the application tier makes tons of sense. I, like, I, I am not saying that what Tumblr did was, it was a mistake. Um, I'm sure that it's evolved since I was there. It's been quite a while. But it was a good architecture. It worked really well. It would be wholly inappropriate for the kinds of problems we're trying to solve at BlueCore. Now, what I was saying before about like BigQuery versus Redshift, they solve similar problems. They do it in slightly different ways. And I'm certain that some of the things that we've done to make BigQuery work best for us would actually hurt us if we were doing it in Redshift. So for us to go multi-platform or multi-cloud multi without having to, we're pushing that off as long as we can. Now, there is there is a distinction that I want to draw, which is... As IT teams have really stepped to the fore, and this is something I've seen a lot in the last year or two, where it used to be that at BlueCore, the marketer was really in the driver's seat about what their platform was going to be and how they were going to work with us. They want you know, a UI. They want to click around. When we talk to IT teams, they don't want to click anywhere. 
They want to write code. They want API integrations. But more importantly, even than API integrations, they want data level integrations. They don't want to call my API in order to get hundreds of millions of events out of our system. Right? That's not a good way to do anything. They want it integrated with their stuff, which means that we're figuring out, and this is something that we're actually actively working on, how do we take the data that we have, especially the data that we've cleaned, and share that with people outside of the four walls of our cloud infrastructure? And it's a, a, a different problem today than maybe I would have thought about even just a couple of years ago because of tools and, and whether it's Snowflake or Cockroach or you know a lot of these tools that are meant to be cloud native that are meant to be outside of any particular infrastructure or installation. So there's a lot changing there. It's very exciting. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating what you were sharing. I mean, I, I mean, I was coming into uh, the conversation, right? I was researching what Bluecore is doing and it's, it, you guys are leading some, some really cool innovations in this space, obviously. And obviously the amount of data that you're dealing with from one particular brand itself takes a lot of work and, and effort and it's it's put together in a way that's digestible that's decision making uh kind of led, leads to making decisions right now one of the things i was really interested in was also understanding you know do you how are you guys integrating with the latest innovations in ai uh, and managing the the, the scale uh, of all of that so i'm happy to say that for blue core machine learning is not new um, you know, when I, when I joined, and again, that's almost six years ago, I joined the data science team. So we've been at this for a while. What we're finding is there are a lot of assistive technologies that really didn't exist a couple of years ago, where large language models have been really important to make marketers' lives easier. But it's helping them do the thing that they're really good at. So as an example, uh, one of our engineers put together a demo that was generating good subject lines for a particular communication. And it, there was, there was a feedback loop and, you know, it wasn't just like go ask chat GPT, Hey, what's a good subject line for my email? There, it was, a, it was a, a lot more functional than that. I'm happy to say, but we went through and all of us, I mean, I, I will tell you, I was blown away with the quality of what came out the other end. I was fully expecting there to be hallucinatory subject lines that we could all laugh at later. And that wasn't the case. I mean, there, there were times where it needed correction, but you could give it correction and it did just fine. A little bit of, of slick UI on top of some prompt engineering and we were able to get something good. However, what that doesn't really help with is personalization. So if you want to say, I, I, have a, I have a million people I want to contact about something. Well, what's the best way for me to talk to Mike about this? Well, that may be different from the best way to talk to David about, about the same thing. There are different things that we're interested in, and that's fine. And that's where these large language models, it's not that they don't have value, but it doesn't actually solve the hardest problem, which is understanding how you and I are different and applying things to it. So when it comes to those types of problems, We've been at it for years, and uh, we've got some really smart people who work on it. Um, 
I am constantly embarrassed by my math skills or lack thereof. One of these days, I'm going to try to learn linear algebra, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Highly recommend it. So, so what's happened for us is that it seems like a lot of what we've been working on for a while, the world is kind of waking up to, oh, wait, marketing correctly, marketing effectively requires more than just segmenting based on things like behavior. It requires understanding and learning about who your customers are and about your own data, about you know whether it's catalog or shopper behavior, all of this stuff kind of comes together to create something a lot more powerful than just having the best subject line. Because the best subject line in the world doesn't matter if, first of all, it's not relevant to me, which kind of implies it's not the best anyway. If it's not relevant to me, it doesn't come at the right time. It's perceived as spam. Like, this is where a lot of what's happened recently, and don't get me wrong, we're we have things that we're exploring. There's a lot that's exciting there, but it's a lot more useful to the people that use our systems rather than to the internals of our systems themselves. I agree. I agree. And especially what you were saying, right? Like I've, I've been in scenarios where people are using uh, these large language models in a RAG system, right? Where they have specific data that they are adding to you know, generate something specific. And um, I think one way that I've seen you can reduce hallucinations is, of course, by adding negative prompts. Say, okay, don't include these things, right? Uh, but one of the things that the world is kind of getting aware of is the idea that large language models are generally can, are good at generalizing. And I like the point that you made that it's not good for personalized. But that's where our traditional machine learning programs like uh, your KNN uh, or your classic recommendation models, uh, they have there's so much work that has been put into those areas, and there's classic combination of these two uh, that can actually produce some amazing, uh, mind blowing results. Actually, one of the things that I'm finding really exciting that's going on now, and we've done some dabbling with it. We can get into why we we kind of went the other way, at least in the short term. But you know, when you mentioned things like KNN. Having databases that can answer that question effectively, where you're, you know previously you you thought about uh, whether it's an R star type of database to do geo things like that's fine, great. Now what do I do when I have three hundred dimensions? You're not doing an R star, I can promise you that. So uh, we did some experiments. Uh, uh, the name of the database just fell out of my head. Uh, we did we did use. Uh, uh, Facebook's FAISS, or I think they call it FACE. I'm not really sure. We used, we, we played around with that for a bit to try to do real-time recommendation stuff. And it's really powerful. So there, so there's not just cool stuff going on in the large language model space. There's really neat stuff going on with feature stores. There's really neat stuff going on with vector databases and vector search. And I think it's a very exciting time. Um, part of that is because memory has become so damn cheap, you know, comparatively speaking, I still don't have, you know, a terabyte of Ram in my, in my laptop, but maybe one day, uh, memory has become so cheap, relatively speaking, that these kinds of problems are now solvable in a way that they weren't before. But, uh, for machine learning, 
beyond just large language models, it's it's been a really exciting couple of years. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I only anticipate it to get wild in 2024 and, you know, rest of the coming years, you know. When you were talking, I, w- I was reminded of, I got a, I had a brief stint at Walmart and uh, I was working with uh, the Sam's Club project team at that time. And I remember uh, one of the projects that I worked on was to influence, you know, uh, the product click-through rate, you know, like, and make sure somebody puts something in a in, in their checkout, basically, the cart and checkout. And we used to run uh, a lot of A-B tests at that time to uh, give different users with, like, say, different age groups and same, uh, you know, uh, I would say same uh, characteristics, this different views, and then we would measure the A/B test results and then push a certain amount of view on the on the Sam's Club website actually. And we did a bunch of crazy like stuff that you are doing, but in a in a very small space for a very specific use case. Um, so it was very interesting to kind of see how all of that mapped, and we use similar technologies to what you are using right now. We do a lot of A/B testing. Um both internally. So we have what we refer to as covert A-B tests, where we're going to make a change on our side that, uh, like if we want to update a model, as an example, we'll run a covert A-B tests to make sure that we uh, maintain or improve the quality of our models. Uh, We also have client-driven A-B tests, because as you can imagine, if you're a marketer, you're looking to sell stuff or more importantly, you're looking to get eyeballs on stuff. Uh, so they are constantly being driven to measure their own performance and improve it. So if we're not able to provide them the tools to do that, they're going to go somewhere else. Now, we also need to answer those same questions. So a lot of the tooling that we have in order to answer those questions externally, we can also use internally. There are some caveats to what I just said, obviously, but uh, as a general statement, we are very data-driven uh, in terms of how we we drive marketers to reach their shoppers. Again, if all you want to do is send tens of millions of emails, there are cheaper ways to do it than through our platform. However, if you want to send the or SMSs or site impressions or whatever, on the other hand, if you want to make those count, you better have something that's a little bit smarter than that. And you know, we try to be a lot smarter than that. But uh, you know, that's actually the mission. It's not just about reaching people; it's about knowing how to do it correctly and at the right time and with the right message. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, as I was saying, and Bluecore is doing some interesting stuff. Obviously, that's why you guys are doing what you are. Almost 10 years uh, as a company, 400 plus brands. It's fascinating. I wanted to get into conversations about your experiences. Tumblr, I remember last time when we met, uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, your Tumblr stories, and now you're wearing a Yahoo t-shirt because Tumblr obviously got bought by them, right? Uh, Gotta represent. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) I want to say, you know, I joined a fabulous social network and had a wonderful three years working there, and all I got is this sweatshirt. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's, awesome. That is totally not true, by the way. I love my time there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, here's what we said, right? Like, we were joking about this. Like, Tumblr 
was a social app that came out a wait like at a wrong time if it came out today uh, it would have been a very interesting uh, solution i would say i mean obviously with some changes to it right um so i was just uh, you know i was just thinking about it but yeah obviously we couldn't get into some of your tumblr stuff uh, i know we are at time um, tell us a little bit about how people can you know uh, catch up with all the awesome mike hobits uh, you know uh, uh, updates you know is it linkedin do you write some stuff where can people follow you so you can find me i'm danger mike pretty much everywhere uh, so you can find me uh, i think i am at dngr mike on twitter uh, you'll find me as danger mike on linkedin you can find me on Blue Sky. You can you can find me everywhere. You can find me on GitHub. Yeah, that's cool. Is that also your Slack name uh, within the company? When people are reaching out to you, like reach out to Danger Mike. <laughs> it it is, and it's funny. Uh, we had a new employee start just this morning, and he's like, "Do I call you Danger?" Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. It all started because when I actually when I joined Tumblr, I joined a team of seven people, and I was the third Mike. Oh wow in a team of seven. So nobody got to be just Mike. Actually, there was one guy who got to be just Mike, but you know, he's cooler than me. Just Mike, probably the first guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's awesome. Mike, I, I wanted to say, I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation hearing about what the cool things you guys are working at at Blue Core. It's definitely fascinating. You know, I just hope like we can continue this conversation into a uh, version two you know, like have a have a have a catch up call, dig into your Shutterstock and your Tumblr story. But you know, it's been fascinating hearing what you guys are working on. Obviously, uh, but more fascinating to see how you are as an architect are building all these things and designing, uh, you know, the applications and services for scale. Obviously, when I meet you next time, I hope we can uh, do a little bit more shit talking about AWS Redshift. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll edit that out, but, but what I mean is like, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure having you. It's been great talking to you too, David.